0: Welcome to the Daily Stoic Podcast, where each weekday we bring you a meditation inspired by the ancient Stoics, a short passage of ancient wisdom designed to help you find strength and insight here in everyday life and on Wednesdays we talk to some of our fellow students of ancient philosophy well-known and obscure fascinating and powerful with them we discuss the strategies and habits that have helped them become who they are and also to find peace and wisdom in their actual lives but first we've got a quick message from one of our sponsors When you're hiring for your small business, you wanna find quality professionals that are right for the job. In fact, we were just hiring for Daily Stoke and we found our new podcast editor on LinkedIn Jobs because LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. Over 2.5 small businesses use LinkedIn for hiring like we do, as I was just saying, because LinkedIn isn't just a job board. It helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites so if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours, sometimes even faster than that. You can hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash stoic. That's linkedin.com stoic to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. You have to see both. We talk a lot here about the successes of the Stoics. We talk about Marcus Aurelius not being corrupted by absolute power. We talk about his brilliant navigation of the Antonine Plague. We talk about Seneca's brave end, which itself was inspired by Cato's towering example. But it's important that we're not just cheerleaders. The Stoics were real men and women, and that meant real flaws too. We also have to explore Marcus Aurelius's failures as a parent. Look at Commodus. Seneca's final stand against Nero was impressive, but less so when one looks at the years of complicity in Nero's service. Cato, too, was unflinching at the end, but was his haughty demeanor and inability to compromise what contributed to Rome's demise in the first place. There was Diotimus, who committed literary fraud, Arius Didymus, who encouraged Octavian to murder his rivals, and all of the Stoics, who owned slaves. To study the past is not to just pick up what you like and be inspired by it. The pursuit of wisdom demands that we look at the failures, too. What did our heroes get wrong? Where did they fall short? Most important, where are we just like them today? The purpose of my book, The Lives of the Stoics, for instance, was not just hero worship, but also sober assessment. The Stoics got a lot wrong. This was bad for them and the victims of their injustices and failures. But centuries later, it is good for us, because we can learn as much about what not to do from the Stoics as we can learn what to do. And this rule is true for any era, any school, any country you decide to study. See both sides. Find inspiration as well as admonishment. Be better because of their hard-won experiences, their weaknesses and their strengths, their failures and their genius." I do think you'll like Lives of the Stoics. It was a really difficult book to do. A lot of research went into it. The idea is not just what the Stoics said, but what did they do? How did they live these ideas? What can we learn from their lives? I was lucky enough to co-write it with my collaborator, Stephen Hanselman. It debuted at number one on the bestseller list. I'm really proud of it. Check it out. It's been selling great. But uh, if you're looking for the next step in this study of Stoicism, I think you have to look not just at what the philosophers said, but what they did, and uh, what you can learn from them. And and let's let's not just look at what they did well, but what they did poorly, and where we can benefit from that lesson as well. Check out Lives of the Stoics anywhere books are sold, and we've got signed, personalized copies in the Daily Stoic store at store.dailystoic.com. Hey, it's Ryan Holiday. Welcome to another episode of the Daily Stoke Podcast. I told you a couple weeks ago I went out to Los Angeles to record some interviews and press for Courage is Calling. All of those are up. You can check out my interview with Lewis Howes, with uh, Tom Bilyeu, with Rich Roll, uh, a bunch of other ones. And you can check out the vlogs we made about that trip, including the near- disastrous car accident and uh, wildfire and all the other stuff we bumped into along the way. Check that out on our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash Daily But my favorite part of the trip, I don't want to say it's the main reason I did it because it wasn't, but it was a very important bonus of the trip. I found myself on a Sunday afternoon. Uh, we were staying in Venice, hopping in the car and driving across Los Angeles to do something I'd done like so many times when I lived in L.A., I was driving to Robert Greene's house um, to drop something off. And that was what I did for so many years. I was working at American Apparel. I was working at this talent agency. And I'd have to go drop off the transcripts of an interview or uh, a book that Robert had asked me to read and you know mark the pages of. Or uh, he'd asked me to pick something up. Just all the things I did as a, as a research assistant. That was my job. I would stop by, drop something off, pick something up, spend a few minutes with Robert. Um, And it was just, you know, I just think back to that time so fondly, I have so much nostalgia for it. And I, you know, in retrospect, it was so formative, it made me the writer that I am today, Um, made me the the human being that I am today. And I have so much gratitude. uh, And I feel so lucky to have had Robert come into my life. And I am deeply indebted to all his generosity and support and guidance over the years. So I was over there to drop off a copy of Courageous Colin, Calling, but more important, I was there to pick up a copy of Robert's new book, which I was so excited for. And that book is now out. It came out yesterday. I'm talking about the Daily Laws, 366 Meditations on Power, Seduction, Mastery, Strategy, and Human Nature. And part of the reason this book came about is that I was talking to Robert about how for many years, people had asked me, what is the best... Stoic to start with? How do I get into Stoicism? And I would recommend sometimes Marcus Realis, sometimes Seneca, sometimes Epictetus, sometimes it would be the right book for the right person, and sometimes it wasn't. And part of what the Daily Stoic was, the book, was an attempt to sort of capture the totality of, of Stoicism, to be a reader, a primer on this philosophy. And so I'm obviously also an evangelist for Robert Greene. And so people have asked me, should I start with the 48 Laws of Power? I was talking to this guy the other day. He was a football player. And he's like, I heard you talking about Robert Greene. So I picked up The Laws of Human Nature. He's like, I'm really struggling. It's a hard book. And I was like, yeah, man, that's like the hardest of all the Robert Greene books. You started like at the most ambitious end of it. Um And so the challenge of where to start with Robert Greene's brilliant life-changing books has always been there. I suggest that he do like a daily Robert Greene book, the best of his thinking, sort of an introductory, a survey course of 20 plus years of writing about strategy and warfare and history and greatness and mastery and all of the things that Robert talks about so brilliantly in his books. And now that book exists, and I'm so pumped. And so when I was there, I was like, Robert, you know what? You're feeling good. He's still recovering from this stroke that he uh, tragically uh, had a few years ago. He was feeling good. His energy level was up. I had time. I was like, Robert, let's just talk about the book for an hour. Let's just let's just like kick it. Uh, and uh, I recorded it. I recorded this on a Sony camera, so we're pulling the audio from this. So if it sounds a little bit different, it's because it wasn't like in studio or or, or with like, uh, mics the way we normally do it, but it was just one of the best conversations I've had with him. I was so grateful that he made the time. I'm so excited to get to do it. I learned a lot as I always do in the presence of the goat, the greatest of all time at what he does. Um, the thing that so many of us writers in this space are looking up at the one and only Robert Greene. And it's, it's wonderful to see him take this victory lap in this new book I think in uh, in when I did uh, the Daily Stoic, my agent said, "This is going to be your best selling book." I said, "No, that's crazy. Why would that be?" Um, I think there's a chance that 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 the Daily Laws becomes one of Robert Greene's best selling book, although it's millions of copies that'll have to sell to pass some of his uh, his classic texts. But it's just such an, a great way to get into Robert Greene. If you're interested in reading about Robert, this is the book for you. If you've been put off or intimidated or you have preconceived notions about his books, I think this is a great way to start. Uh, You can pick it up anywhere books are sold. We, of course, carry it at my bookstore, The Painted Porch. You can pick up uh, a copy online as well at thepaintedporch.com, or the link will be in the show notes. But uh, Robert Greene's the best. It was so wonderful to get to talk to him. And I think you will enjoy this interview, and I know you will enjoy the new book, The Daily Laws. 366 meditations on power, seduction, mastery, strategy, and human nature. So without further ado, here's me at Robert Greene's house, talking about all those things. So, This is the new book, The Daily Laws. I see it as kind of a greatest hits album, Uh Uh, a best of Robert Greene, because to me, I feel like it's a question people ask me a lot. They... They'll hear me or someone else talk about you. Mm-hmm. And then they'll go, what Robert Greene book should I start with? And it's kind of a tricky thing because if you go Forty Laws of Power, maybe they get turned off because it's dark. If you went with Seduction, maybe they're, that's not what they're... in. It, it, to me, it's, it's actually a question I get with the Stoics, too. Like, who should you start with? It, it feels really hard, but this is, to me, perfect because it's basically the best of all your stuff in the most digestible way. Mm-hmm. Like I was talking to a football player, actually, uh, he plays at Alabama and he was, he had heard that the laws of human nature was really good. Mm-hmm. And I thought that's probably, to me, that's like advanced class Robert Greene. <laughs> Maybe not where I would start if I was 19 years old. Yeah, it depends. It depends on your background. and
1: If you read a lot of books on psychology and if you can, stomach going through a nearly 600-page book. <laughs> right. But it's, you know, I have a lot of people who you wouldn't think would be reading the laws of human nature, but who read it slowly and bit by bit, and particularly if you're in a situation where you're dealing with a lot of difficult people. But the way I look at the book is a little bit differently in that um, I sort of see like it embodying kind of two main lessons that I've derived in life. The first, one? Yeah, the yeah. first one was... Um, You know, unlike you, I did not have any success in my life until I was essentially 38 years old. And prior to that, I had a lot of very painful experiences as I kind of wandered my way through the work world. And I was sort of entered the work world out of college with all of these silly illusions about people, about success, about who I was. And slowly they all got knocked down one by one. It was very painful and very emotional and it caused me a lot of drama, and it probably set me back several years. Although in the end, it gave me all the material for the 48 Laws of Power. And what I sort of learned from all of that that crap that occurred to me was that really what I needed to, to forge was kind of this realistic outlook on life, where I get rid of all the bullshit, all the things that you learned in university, all the bad ideas that you got from your parents, all the bad ideas that you get from your peers. And you're able to look at the world relatively objectively, and I mean relatively, and it doesn't mean that life becomes this kind of boring, gray world of just, it actually becomes more exciting and fulfilling. And so I learned that the hard way, that that kind of realistic attitude, which I was forged through a lot of battles, is really, really what allowed me to write the 48 Laws of Power. And the second thing was the power of daily practice, yes. of habits. Now I've been meditating for about 11, exactly 11 years now. Every single day, I don't miss a single day. If I miss one day, I make sure the next day I do two times. And the habit of doing it every day is just very fulfilling. It, it becomes something I look forward to and it's really helped have a profound effect upon me. But habits of work and discipline where every day you attack something is where our the power of our brain operates maximally. So, this is a book that every day is going to make you meditate on something and it's going to infuse you with that realistic outlook that
0: I think kind of actually literally saved my life. No, I think I think that's right, because and what I found with The Daily Stoic is you read it once and you're getting the sort of greatest hits survey course of the works and thinking of Robert Reed. And there is a lot of value in that. And that's more than the $26 or whatever the book costs. <laughs> but it's it's. Really on read number two and three, or 50, depending on how young you are when you buy the book, that's where the value of the daily practice is. Like I imagine your meditation is relatively the same as it was 10 years ago, 15 years ago. And the power is the groove you get into doing the same thing over and over again. And I think, so you mentioned that the laws of human nature is 600 pages, so there's a percentage of the population that could read a 600-page book, but how many people are gonna take the time to read a 600-page book two or three times? And the books that have really influenced me have been books that I've interacted with over the course of my life. Right, right. Yeah, I think there's something really special about the daily practice. This is what, like, for instance, daily or nightly Bible study is for certain people. It's, again, the words are the same, but you're different and what you just went through or are going to go through that day is different, this is that Heraclitus idea that we never step in the same river twice. I think there's something really cool about revisiting the same ideas over and over again. Well, um, the thing is,
1: my philosophy has always been you have to make ideas your own. Mm -hmm. You have to take what somebody teaches and you have to put it into your own experience. It can't just be these dead words that you kind of digest have no relevance to your daily experience. You have to take them they have to come to life within you, within your own experience. So you read a passage and it's oh, not maybe what I'm really going through right now, but you kind of maybe recall some experiences in the past that might be relevant. And then the second day you come up something that is maybe a little bit closer. And then as you go through it more and more and more that kind of soaks in and you see more and more access points to your daily experience. And then it can kind of become something that you internalize.
0: Yeah, I talk about sort of using the confirmation bias like against itself or using the confirmation bias to your advantage. So like, I'll hear from people, and they'll be like, how did you know on today's entry, the Daily Stoic, that this is exactly what I needed? Well, the truth is I didn't, right? I wrote it five years ago, and you might be in Australia and someone in America might be reading different entries on the same day. So it's really that we bring to the text exactly what we need. It's why fortune cookies and horoscopes seem to have power, is that we see in them what we already knew but couldn't articulate to ourselves. And there's sort of a Delphic quality there where like it's just vague, like your passages are just short enough, just general enough that whatever you're going through, it could feel like that was exactly... Yep. the advice that you needed that morning. Well, I had the
1: experience, very weird experience, with the 48 Laws of Power when it first came out. I would go, it was my very first book tour, and I would go to, I was in Washington, and I went to the, um, what was it called? Voice of America. Yeah. And this woman comes running up to me in the hallway saying, God, that book that you just described exactly what I'm going through. Everything is just so perfect. You must have you must know Washington really well. I said, no, and the same <laughs> thing happened to someone Who's in the um, in the what's the, word, the the charitable world? What do you call it? The oh, the non-profit, nonprofit. Yeah, the nonprofit world. They did the same thing. Then athletes will say it. So yeah, you kind of project and you, your own
0: emotions and your own experiences of the moment into what you're reading. That's totally viable. And I think that's also what happens when it's why Buddhism and Stoicism and Christianity often feel very aligned, even though they didn't particularly influence each other, because also when you boil something down to its essence like in the way that in comedy the really specific becomes universal because it's actually not that specific it's tapped into something uniquely human uh, that everyone can relate to even if the experiences are very different yeah yeah so uh, i i was also thinking when i was when we were talking about this book that in a way maybe maybe not everyone knows this, but i actually think the daily concept is slightly it goes back to the very beginning for you because if I remember correctly, you told me once that the original plan for the 40 laws of power was 52 laws, <laughs> which could have been a week, you know, a reading uh, a passage a week. Although, you, if I remember correctly, you got, you got rid of that specifically, so people didn't do that. Yeah, it
1: was also like playing cards, which there are 52 hours. Uh, right. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, but the calendar, 52 weeks. But I mean, what happened was, I mean, I've told the story before, is the publisher, normally my um, relationship to publishers is, don't tread on me, hands off, get as far away from my material as possible, do not edit it, I don't trust you. But in this instance, I'm open to their ideas, and in this instance, they said, 52 laws of power doesn't sound so great. What we really want is 48. And the 52 sounded too much like a gimmick. Yeah. And I agreed because I can't be rigid about things. Sure. So what I did was I took four of the laws and combined them with other ones. So I didn't get rid of anything. I just kind of made into into 48. I just
0: sort of fitted it in. Well, and that is the 48th law of well, assumed formlessness, right? That actually they can be moved around yeah. and combined with each other. But violating
1: movement. a law, which seems don't show your own tricks but that's you know, true and it's 23
0: years later so I don't really care anymore but and isn't it also funny that like so when it's when you're working on it it's like could be 42 could be 48 um, and then uh, then once it's done and in the world it's like 48 is obviously yeah. the right number like no other number yeah. could have worked yeah. yeah
1: people always say what's the 49th law I said, there's no such thing it's only 48 processes <laughs> everything in the universe, but you know, numbers have a, a kind of a, a feel to them, you know? And so the, the word for the number 48 has a kind of power already in it, which is, whereas 47 or 46
0: doesn't have that kind of resonance. Although if it had been the 47 miles of power <laughs> and it had sold millions of copies and had the influence, I think everyone would be saying, obviously there's no 48th law, there's only 47 laws. Yeah, that's true, that's true. So it's, we sort of look backwards and we're like, it could have only been the way that it was. Yeah. But in reality, there was it was more malleable than... It was, it was. And you know, to be honest with you, when
1: I first started doing the research for it, God, so many years ago, I had like 72 laws. Wow. I mean, the original concept was, I was going through all my research and Yost, the man who kind of packages my material, did the cover of this book, um, he said, well, Robert, what do you? how's it coming? And I said, well, I'm working on these kind of laws of power. And he goes, wow, that sounds great. Just that phrase, you know? Yeah, yeah. And he goes, and I said, yeah, I kind of have like 72. he goes, well, just, you know, go with it. And then I sort of like kept reducing and reducing and reducing them, until it came to 48. So over 52, whatever.
0: May is Mental Health Awareness Month and Talkspace, the leading virtual therapy provider, is encouraging people to talk it out in therapy. Opening up to a therapist might feel uncomfortable, exhausting, or exhilarating, but one thing's for certain. If you keep talking or texting with a licensed therapist, you'll gain insights and uncover truths you can only find in therapy. If you want some personal breakthroughs and judgment-free support, you can sign up right now for Talkspace. At Talkspace.com, you sign up online, you get a personalized match with a provider that's right for you, typically within 48 hours. It's incredibly convenient to have virtual sessions with your licensed therapist, and you do it from the comfort of your home. There's no need to commute to appointments, miss time at work, or line up Child care in order to attend sessions. It's mental health care made easy. And to celebrate May, Mental Health Awareness Month and the power of talking it out in therapy, Talkspace is offering every listener of this podcast 80 bucks off your first month with promo code SPACE80. When you go to talkspace.com/slash stoic. To match with a licensed therapist today, go to Talkspace.com slash stoic to get 80 bucks off your first month with code space 80 and show your support for the show. That's Talkspace.com slash stoic code space 80. The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. I talk about that in growth hacker marketing. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind, flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com stoic. That's netsuite.com stoic. Well, that's what. So on the Four Virtues series that I'm working on, this is the weirdest one where I'm doing, I'm having to, like for you, it's the same with me where you wrote each book not knowing necessarily what the next one would be or they were sort of contained, although they work as a trilogy or or, yours works as sort of a a body of work. that's now distilled down into this one. But this is the first time I'm having to think about how four books interrelate with each other. And you mean the um, the four books of the, the four, series? Yeah, because so first courage, then temperance, self discipline, then justice, then wisdom. Yeah. And so, like, I had a whole bunch of ideas that would go in the courage book, and then as I looked at the finished book, like you you read a galley of it, um, there were laws that there were chapters or ideas. That I was like, actually, this has to go in the other book. And I think that was something I learned from you, though, was like. You have to sort of ruthlessly cull. You think it's 72. I mean, that would be heartbreaking to be like, actually, you have to either combine or get rid of 30-ish laws. Like, yeah. but, but that is a part of the process. Is like really boiling it down right. to, to the only the best stuff. Yeah,
1: and uh, you know, I had to get rid of a lot of material for it. I mean, someday people might want to look at that. I had a couple of chapters that we totally got rid of that no one has ever read, no one has ever seen. Can I say that? I had one chapter, it was called Use Religion. And the idea was to use religion to gain power. Yeah. And I just changed it into Create a Cult-like Following. One of the best chapters. Yeah, it is, but I wrote a whole chapter on how to use religion. And we thought, that's too nasty, that's too controversial, and we got rid of it. But yeah, you have to be willing to get rid of things. You have to be kind of ruthless with yourself. And, you know, a lot of books now, certainly yours excluded, they're, t- they're too wandering. They don't yeah. have a structure. They, you get the feeling that somebody had an idea for a first chapter, and they kind of riffed on that, and the first chapter might be good. Then they kind of lose their way. They think that everything they say and think is brilliant. They don't know how to structure. They don't know how to be ruthless with yourself. Like to say this idea actually isn't true.
0: It actually isn't very good. It's not relevant. Get rid of it. Well, it's like that Stephen King line about kill, you have to kill your darlings, yeah, yeah. which I like because it's such a, it's a Machiavellian, like dark, almost Robert Green waves expressing yeah. Yeah. the writing, which is like, you love this thing and you sweat it over it and you think it's so clever and cool. And that's why it has, that's why you have to get rid of it. Yeah. Otherwise you're being self-indulgent right. or, um, yeah, I mean, 48 Laws is a lot of laws. 72, I mean, I could see people being sort of like, that's a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It would have been
1: a 600-page book. It would have been not good. Yeah. Yeah, I've killed millions of darlings over the year. I
0: have a whole bloody battlefield full of them. I heard Robert Caro cut, like, 300,000 words out of The Power Broker. Are you kidding? Which is already, like, 1,100 pages. And you just imagine how painful that would be. Even just the fact that he writes longhand. He does? Yeah, he writes longhand and his wife types it. But you're just like, how... I mean, that's like two books, at least three, maybe. And he just just left it on the cutting room floor. But it's a great book, Yes, it is. Of course. Of course. As you thought about... One of the interesting things about the book is that it's not just sort of a random smattering of the best of Robert Greene. It's like built around each month. There's a theme, so there's 12 themes. But... Was it interesting to you to see how often you return to the same theme? So, like, I would have thought, like, okay, for instance, there's the chap, there's the one about uh, grand strategist, right? Mm-hmm. Or you would think that in the month of September, you would only have been drawing on the 33 strategies of war. Yeah. But actually, there's seduction in there and laws of human nature. Is it interesting to you that... that how often you touch on the same themes across your books even though you're you're looking at it either from the ones of warfare or seduction or power or psychology?
1: Well, I've always been kind of attracted to that idea where you pull material from places that aren't um, so logical. So for instance, when I was doing the art of seduction, I really, really wanted to have war stories in there. I really wanted to be able to quote Sun Tzu, you know? And like, because yeah. seduction I saw as kind of strategy. And then when I did the 33 Strategies of War, I wanted to have a seduction story in there, and I actually did incorporate a couple of seduction stories in there, sort of show how they cross reference But things that are are not so predictable, that come to you from right angles, or like you're reading about war, and suddenly I'm narrating a story about a film director. Right. So I'm trying to give it relevance to all aspects of human endeavor. So a politician is seducing the public. A war strategist is actually playing on the mind of the enemy and seducing them to believe something and misleading them. So um, these
0: kind of cross-reference points sort of fascinate me. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. I thought the August chapter about persuasion was an interesting way to look at what otherwise might have been categorized as seduction or manipulation. It's like, oh, zooming out, like, even if you're married, and even if you're, you know, not engaged in whatever, but you're trying to sell something to someone, or you're trying to, uh, you know, get people interested in a story or an idea or a cause, you still are relying on the same uh, timeless themes to to do that.
1: Well, it all kind of boils down to human psychology and how you 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 know how the human mind works and our weaknesses and our vulnerabilities. And that's what all of my books kind of play on to some degree, even mastery, is trying to work with your your brain, how it's structured, and your own strengths and your own weaknesses. So that's that's a through line that goes through all the chapters. But for the month of August, I mean, one thing we didn't say is each month is introduced by kind of an essay that's sort of reflects my own personal experiences, right. something I've never done before, because I'm Actually, quite loathe to talk about myself. This like,
0: is your first book, I think, other than maybe the intro to the fiftieth law, where there is the word "I." I yeah, have that in the 50th I think so. Law? Well, you talk about you and fifty meeting. Oh, okay, but I'm just saying this is the first. You're. It's not breaking the fourth wall because this is like how it works. But you're like Robert Greene, the character person, is yeah. in this book.
1: Yeah. Well, I, I usually try to avoid that because I'm trying to give out like. My books are narrated by the voice of God. I know that sounds very pretentious, but um, it's like this is the timeless wisdom of 5,000, 6,000 years of human experience. It's not me, Robert. Yeah. But in this instance, each month is kind of illustrated by things that have happened to me personally, because believe it or not, these books actually do reflect things that I've felt and I've, I've dealt with. And the month of August, I kind of talk about the process of writing a book. And the pro- we've talked about it a little bit earlier, the process of writing a book is a form of persuasion, is a form of seduction, right? And so I say what
0: goes... You have to be pretty enthralled to make it through a 600-page book. You have to carry them from here to here with all the things that are happening in the world, right? drawing them away from that.
1: Right. And
0: so I tell people, like, the main reason why I think
1: books fail, and I honestly, honestly believe most books written now fail, I have a hard time getting through a lot of new books, although there are some very good exceptions, is because the writer assumes that the reader is on the same level. They have the same amount of knowledge and the same amount of interest as he or she. And so they write as if the reader is just a reflection of them. And they don't realize that that person that you're reaching has comes from a totally different socioeconomic background, maybe a different gender, all these other things that are completely different from you. And you have to kind of draw them into your world. And if you start out by being all academic and quoting these things, people turn off, right? Yeah. So it's a writing a book is a form of persuasion, but everything is a form of persuasion in life. If you're in business and you're just, you have a product and you're trying to sell it, you know you have to understand human psychology. You have to get inside your client's mentality. If you're a politician, I mean, whatever. Maybe athletics is a little different, but if you're a coach, and I've dealt with coaches
0: before, that's very much part of the game. Well, yeah, and I think like the decision not to be in most of your books is part of that because it's easier as a writer to be like, here's what I think. Like yesterday, I was at the store. Right, right. It's actually harder and requires more work to go. How can I find something in history or that's bigger or more universal or more compelling that is more likely to persuade the reader? Because I think if about ego is the enemy, if you assume the writer is your if you assume the reader is your fan, that they care about you, that they know who you are, that they're interested in what you had for lunch yesterday, you are deluding yourself. You have to do the work to say like, no, I want to create this vision or this universe that sucks you in and Napoleon is way more interesting than you or I. Yeah, so I'm kind of violating that here. I hope that doesn't turn people off. See, I think it's the opposite because now that you are like I think if this was your first book, it would be indulgent. But now 20 years in, you so now people do, you know, you've cultivated this air of mystery to to go to the laws. And now by revealing just a little bit, you're actually making it, I think, more seductive because now I'm matching the words, I'm matching the ideas with the human being who made them. And it's I think more enthralling
1: well, there's a lot of things I didn't reveal a lot of stories about my past that I will never reveal that are weirder than anything in there, sure, so you know don't think that you, you... those are in your papers, yeah, yeah, well, Anno could narrate them someday or, or my sister or somebody, but yeah
0: yeah, it's uh i I do think most books don't do a good enough job convincing the reader to give a shit, right. You know, and that's why it's, I think it's good that your books are controversial. And and people, I think, sometimes misunderstand why that is. But it's like controversy is also caring. Yeah. You know, like you're, if you have a negative, like I've liked, like people will be like, uh, I haven't read your book, Ego is the Enemy, but I disagree. And I go, that, that first off, that is what ego is. But, um, <laughs> But the fact that you have a strong opinion based on the title alone, is already it's already won out over 90% of books that are out there. And so I think when you can make a strong argument, like I think with the new book, The um, The Sublime, just even that, like, I'm like, what is that? Right? Like, that's not, it's a thing I vaguely know, but I don't know. And so I'm already, like, want to know more. I'm really struggling with that book. I mean, it's,
1: you know, it's, I think it's going to be very interesting and very successful, but I have to make an even extra leap to try and make this so relevant to the reader. It's very difficult because it's it's experiences that aren't having to do with power. It has to do with things that are slight. I hate the word slightly more spiritual. Please excuse me. But um,
0: what's more ineffable, it's not like, yeah. here's what troops did on this battlefield. Right. And, and this is the terrain they won. Right. So how do I relate that to the reader? I had that
1: problem with the war book. How do I make Napoleon relevant to your personal life? So
0: it's actually been a problem throughout all my books. But Don't you think that's the journey you're on? Like If, if it was getting... The whole point of mastery is that you should be applying it to harder tasks. Yeah. Well, I don't know if
1: you go through the same thing. You should answer it. If I ever feel like... The, the next book is kind of dead. It doesn't really feel like a challenge. It's like I'm just kind of riffing off my past success and kind of just doing variations on the sure. same theme. Something dies inside of me, and then something dies inside of the book. It has no spirit, no life. So I have to feel like I'm surprised by it. I have challenges. I'm like, you know, I have to up my game. I can't just rest on my laurels. It should scare you a little bit, I yeah. feel like. You have the same thing.
0: I'm just about to go into the studio to record my latest audiobook. My wife and I have been listening to audiobooks. We've been listening to audiobooks in the car as a family just to keep our kids off screens because Audible is amazing. And Audible is also the destination for thrilling audio entertainment with highly anticipated new releases and next-to-listen recommendations to satisfy every type of thriller listener. If you want breathtaking, sinister, and shocking tales that will enthrall you, even brand new and exclusive thrillers from best-selling authors then you want to check out Audible. My wife and I were just raving about this true crime audio book that we read called Furious Hours. And then I've been raving about this book, Night of the Grizzlies, which I loved. Audio piques the imagination and it brings thrillers to life. And as an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog. Visit audible.com slash Daily Stoic or text Daily Stoic to 500-500. That's audible.com slash Daily Stoic or text Daily Stoic to 500-500. Hims is changing men's health care by providing access to affordable sexual health treatments from the comfort of your couch. It's always sensitive talking about these things. But Hims is changing men's health care by providing access to doctor-trusted ED treatments such as chewable hard mints, brand-name treatments like Viagra, or generic alternatives for up to 95% cheaper. The process is simple and 100% online. No uncomfortable doctor's visits. If prescribed, your medication ships to you for free. No insurance needed. Start your free online visit today at hymns.com slash tds that's h-i-m-s.com slash tds for your personalized ed treatment options hardmints are a chewable compounded products are not approved by or verified for safety or effectiveness by the FDA. Prescriptions require an online consultation with your healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate restrictions apply. See website for details and important safety information. Subscription required price varies based on product and subscription plan. Yeah. Uh, so, um, cause this series is sort of scary for me. And so I found this, um, quote from, uh, Martha Graham, who actually I heard about through you. There's I guess um was it Agnes demille wrote this fascinating biography about her yeah, I have. oh you do yeah maybe you, you're the one that told me about it but um it's a it's a quote from Martha Graham where she's saying like um uh never fear the material the material knows you're afraid and it won't help <laughs> that's great I didn't know that. but I love the idea that it should be sca- it, it should be and I guess this goes to the idea of courage but it should scare you but then you also can't be afraid of it yeah. that's the weird tension of it Now, what do you think about um, people that are going into your book,
1: um, where I feel like there's so much, people are so timorous, they're so afraid, they appear to be very strong and full of rage and anger, but really they're just conformists to the highest degree, and we're seeing like a plague of conformity in politics in all areas. Don't you feel, are you worried that people are going to be almost like shocked by your book, or like how do...
0: I don't know about that. I, I do, I do. the problem, I, I think one of the things that scared me about the book is when you're talking about courage, you're implicitly uh, uh, condemning or indicting people for not being courageous. So, so it's somewhat of a sensitive topic, right? Because when you hold up courage, you're sort of implying that, by definition, certain people are not courageous. We well, all start... As cowards. Yeah. You and I talked about
1: that on, we discussed my own experiences and your experiences. So it's not like, you
0: know, we, I, you feel superior, but still. Um, well, it's interesting to me about courage because courage is this thing that we all admire. I don't think there's any culture that's ever existed in which courage was not, not only a virtue, but probably the primary virtue, right? Whether it's a matriarchal society or a patriarchal society, ancient modern, courage is like, As core as it gets as the human species. And yet, it's extraordinarily rare. And I don't know why. So it seems so strange, right? And it's not like like, uh, mastery or like technical skill is also uh, uh, held up and rare. But it's rare because it's really hard to cultivate. Courage is so much more accessible to people. Like, you have a choice every day. And yet, it's rare. And I think that's what's most interesting to me about it. Uh-huh. Like, yeah. and and often, the and I get that there's obviously self-interest and self-preservation, but so often when you're looking at politics or business, I think Peter Drucker said, like, um, like the future is scary. Uh, or or some, something about how, like, the, you have to invent the future. It's the safest thing. Yeah. What's so interesting about courage is that often... Courage is the less risky thing for people. They do the cowardice, cowardly thing, even though it's not in their interest. Right, right. But it's weird because um, nobody
1: really talks about courage anymore. It's kind of a word that almost seems like 19th century. <laughs> like it's Winston Churchill. and like some dusty thing mm-hmm. that you know.
0: So it, it's kind of weird that... It's so important but nobody really talks about it anymore well I, I have a chapter in the book about earnestness mm-hmm. and there's a great quote from General mattis that he, where he says cynicism is cowardice and I For think sure. that's that's part of it it's like to talk about courage it feels like a little sentimental sentimental or it's just like it's like we have this expression now like someone's a try hard like they, they didn't know that they, or, or like someone's thirsty like they, they want it too bad. Like it feels a little lame to be, to like talk about courage, right? Like the great man of history theory feels silly compared to the idea of like systemic oppression and, and like, it's easier to be cynical and say that it's hopeless and broken than to courageously like believe in or be committed to anything. Right, right. Which is sad. It is sad. Well, that's why I think that this book is so important,
1: because you bring it down to the level of the individual. So we often think like it's, we think in large, big paint strokes of society at large for change, that we all have to organize, et cetera. But it comes down actually to individuals making certain
0: decisions and certain, taking certain actions that are courageous. Well, that's what I've been trying to wrestle with. Where it's like, you, Let's say you look at a politician and you're like, why won't they... Just do this, right? And it seemed, and and they should, and that's obvious. But don't you think there's also? It's like, when was the last time I jeopardized the future of my profession for an idea that I believe? In? So I think one of the weird things about courage is that we we spend a lot of time questioning other people's, but less time actually like looking hard in the mirror and going like, yeah. When you know, you know what? I, like, it's easy to go. Why won't LeBron James, you know, talk about? China. It's because he's afraid of losing his endorsements, and that may or may not be completely true and a fair criticism. But like, when was the last time I, you know, like said anything negative about a major source of my income? You've said you've, had, you've stirred up a few hornets' nests. I, I have. I'm just say, I'm just saying it's really easy to question other people's courage I know, I know. as a as a as a smokescreen for having to be like. What are you doing in your own life? Yeah, yeah. Well,
1: you know, that's probably why I didn't go into politics in the first place. I didn't have to get into that dirty position. But, um, you know, that's what we did in the last
0: talk we had. I kind of examined my experience at American Apparel,
1: which, you know, could be a slight profile in cowardice in that, you know, uh, it took me a few years to make a hard decision and I could have. Me on the board could have made the decision earlier, but you know I had to confront certain weaknesses in myself that were emotional about betraying a friend, et cetera. So I can understand what you're saying. You know, it's it's not it's, it's easy to always say the other person isn't being courageous.
0: Yeah, there's a story I have in the book about Khrushchev where he was like, "This is after the death of Stalin." He's sort of railing about Stalin and all his abuses, and uh, somebody passes a note up and it says like Yeah, but where were you at the time?" And, you know, he was going to, like, have them killed or yell, and he just goes, well, I was where you are right now. You know, yeah, like, I've, also in the audience. I that same anecdote in the 48 Law. Oh, really? I got it from Nick. I, I read a book that Nixon wrote. It's this uh-huh. fascinating book called Leaders, where Nixon wrote about all the leaders he had spent time with. Uh huh. And I just love, yeah, I love that story. And, and it's... Uh, What's it's the true. book by Nixon? It's just called Leaders. Uh, it was he, really interesting. He's, he's actually a very intelligent, interesting person,
1: despite the big stain on
0: him in history. Well, what's the book you recommended to me about him that was, uh, what was it called? The one that I use for human nature. Yeah. Um, it's by the guy that works with Walter Isaacs in Heaven, something I feel like. That was really good. Yeah. Um, but yes, uh, uh, actually a, an interesting sort of, concept, it it feels like it ties into the daily laws where it's like Nixon often knew what to do, but was kind of had this inner battle inside of himself. But,
1: you know, the thing is, you talk about how difficult it is, but I still have the feeling that people back in the past, and I could be totally wrong, were a little more courageous than we are now, that we're kind of losing something. Because I can think of three or four instances, even in Nixon's smarmy career, where he was actually very courageous. This guy was supporting the Voting Rights Act and civil rights measures in the late '50s that could have gotten him in a lot of hot water. You know, he 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 did a lot of things that went against his own self-interest, even though he was such a conniving politician.
0: Well, look, even his resignation was certainly more courageous than uh, than Trump. Or, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, no, Nixon is Nixon is fascinating. I did. I do think in the past we were more courageous. Yeah. Although- Are no, so, an illusion? Well, there's this, um, I, I talk about this in the book because there's another similar book to the Nixon one that Churchill wrote called Great Contemporaries. Where he wrote biographies of people that he knew in his own time. And he was talking about like Lord Ashbury, I don't know, some British character that wasn't particularly important, but that was the point. He was saying- that he was a great man who lived in a time of small events. (laughs) And I thought that was interesting because I think people see themselves that way now. Um, You know, we're not in the middle of the civil rights movement or this or that. Um, But I was kind of thinking about, okay, well, when did this guy live? And it was like, you know, like 1830 to like 1900 or whatever. And it's like, it's small events, but also like, Slavery still existed. I'm talking about in England. Yeah, in England. I'm talking about in the world. Like slavery still existed, imperialism still existed. Yeah, you had the Boer Wars, you had So he lived in a time of small events, but only because he chose not to participate in mm-hmm. larger events. So when you look at it and you go, oh, people were more courageous in the past. They were, but also they also kicked the can down the road on a lot of stuff yeah. as well. Yeah, but you know, you take something like World War Two, where um
1: every American, at least going on that, had to make incredible sacrifices. Sure. For the you know, personal sacrifices for their food, their clothing, their, their health, their welfare. They were willing to do it because they saw a greater cause. And that took
0: some I don't know if that's quite courage, I'm not sure. But now where people Well, I just you know, wrote a I'm just writing an article about this right now where like um I was describing a school teacher and she's asked to do something that is against her conscience. Mm-hmm. And the power of the state comes down on her. The parents are angry. Uh, you know, uh, everyone, you know, she's embarrassed in the media. It's this huge thing. She says, I won't do it. I'd rather be fired than do it. Mm-hmm. So, like, on paper, that's admirable courage. But what if I tell you that what she's expressed, what, what she's doing is refusing to take a vaccine? Um, And so it's interesting, too, that courage isn't simply defiance or courage isn't simply standing alone. It also matters what you choose to be courageous about. And so I think that's also something we're struggling with is like we do live in a time of relative peace and prosperity. And so I think people like they want to be courageous or they grew up admiring courageous people and they're not. They don't, left and right, don't always, have, they kind of will make either a mountain out of a molehill or they'll ignore something. They, they don't quite know where to apply the courage. And courage isn't, it, courage is only valuable in conjunction with the other virtues. I see. And you make, you make that point, didn't you? Yeah, there's a Lord Byron quote. He says, the cause makes all. Yeah. that hallows or degrades courage in its fall. Or, yeah, hallows or degrades courage in its fall. But who's the arbiter of what the great cause is? I know. that's touched upon a problem there. That's the tricky thing for sure. But, like, okay, um, uh, was it uh, Lieutenant William Callie, the, the Miley yeah, Massacre? Yeah, yeah. He, everyone in his unit, under penalty, refuses to testify against him. Right. Is that courage? No. But it was scary, right? Like so it's there's a tension in courage. And I it's like courage is rare, but then courage applied to the right thing is rarer still.
1: Yeah, but then you come back to the point who's the arbiter of what is right. I, I mean know. I know. Um I mean, maybe that's what you're gonna discuss and you're your, a way to kind of a
0: standard that we can apply. Well, that's how the virtues relate to each other, right? So courage and self-discipline are connected because if you're, you know, like you think about restraint or when to retreat or discretion is a better part of valor. And then yeah, justice and courage are inextricably intertwined because courage in pursuit of an unjust cause. Like plenty of uh, brave Southerners fought in right. the Civil War, right, but it's not the same. We instinctively we know there's something hollow about that. But that only came out through a historical
1: vantage point. Like they at the time never thought that, and really even up until like contemporary times, people really. I can remember growing up where the South and the, and the cause of the Confederacy, yeah, it was kind of despicable. But Robert E. Lee,
0: he was a courageous general, right. So this is well, awesome. Trump just said this, this week. Yeah. He said if Robert E. Lee was in charge yeah, in right. Afghanistan, yeah. we wouldn't yeah. have lost. Right, right. He'd be yeah. on his horse right. with him leading the cavalry. I hate to bring it to you, but he did lose the Civil
1: War also. <laughs> <Yeah. so>.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> but you know, the, the woman who's who's you mentioned. Yeah. I mean, is it really courage? Because she's got these this this these this crowd that she belongs to. And she's kind of conforming to their opinions, and she's perhaps afraid of what her neighbors will think if she gets the vaccine. It's true. There's no, like, kind of higher...
0: Well, I think think it's just important. Courage is not just not doing... Like, courage is not just not doing what people want you to do. Just as freedom is not just freedom to give people a deadly virus. So... I think you have to think about what are you deciding to be? Well, think about it with Dove, right? Dove saw himself as this courageous liberator and, you know, like uh, that he was breaking down boundaries and he was brave enough to be himself. Yeah, and it's like actually you had lost all self-control. It's not the same same thing. Yeah, I mean, I think it's important, though, to have kind
1: of icons of courage in the world. And so, like... One person I looked at right now—I've mentioned to you before—is the Russian Navalny. Yes, I think oh yeah,
0: I included him in the book because yeah. after we
1: talked. Oh yeah, yeah. I'm like, you know, I couldn't have that kind of courage, but I can admire it because he's basically. So he was in Germany after being poisoned. He got away. He knows, yeah. He knows they're going to kill him, or, or they say he's going to suffer, and he goes back to Russia. Man, I couldn't do that. No, but I admire that so greatly. So I think the ability to have people that you can say, maybe I can't do that, but boy, I admire it. Maybe that will have some meaning if ever I'm in similar circumstances because I have a role model. You know, it's it's important what, you know, that I live up to these certain particular ideals.
0: No, I think that's right. And I talked in the book about, it's like sometimes you need the courage of the immigrant to leave the old world and come to the new world. But then you also sometimes, if everyone did that, things would never get better there. And so, yeah, you think Martin Luther King could have lived out his life peacefully and in, in, you yeah, know, influence? Or I mean, in New York City, yeah, yeah. He, uh, and many times he would go back to the places where he knew he would be arrested. Specifically, right. he said, "I have to go back into the valley." Right,
1: right. And
0: I think that I think that's what Nivali did is, is he went back, even though he knew what would happen. Um, and to me, that's not just courage; that's uh, a higher plane of. Of what you would call heroism. If you think about like the Spartans were brave, but the decision to go to Thermopylae is a level of courage that's, I think, almost transcendent. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and I, I think your point about examples is good. And I love the Longfellow poem where he says, The lives of great men all remind us we can make our lives sublime. Yeah. The, you need. That's also the problem with our study of history where we try to project certain things. We, we strip ourselves of the ability to have heroes that we admire. Oh yeah, yeah, right, right. It's all like looked at through the prism of our own values now. And so, you know, they believe in things that we are
1: despicable or they did this one act that right. is morally dubious to us today. Who, who would ever survive that kind of scrutiny? You can even apply it, I suppose, to Navalny if you wanted to be that cynical. He has a bunch of regressive,
0: ridiculous beliefs from what I've, what I've read. Well, he did it earlier yeah. on. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, and that was actually something, maybe that's a good place to wrap up. I remember you told me this. You were like, read older books. Like, read older biographies, just, you know, back to Plutarch and beyond, in that, like, the point... There, there was a pivot point in the literature where we decided that the role of the biographer was not to find what we can learn from this person or what made them great or special or whatever. It was like either let me literally compile as many facts as possible, or let me uh, destroy this person piece by piece to the point where there's really no reason to study them at all. Mm -hmm. And I think the older books do a better job, not of uh, like sort of, you know, turning someone into being more than just a person, but actually looking at it from the frame of like what can I learn from this person? Yeah.
1: And then of course, we now have like a hundred years later, we're able to I mean, there are a lot of books that were written in the past that we wouldn't like now. So we, we were able to judge that with the perspective of the years gone by. But I found um basically that people in the past had fewer acts to grind. Yes. That they were that they took the role of the biographer as almost like it was a sacred thing that they were doing, that they had a role and a purpose, which was to try and bring this person to life. Yes. Now, of course I'm being idealistic, and there are certainly exceptions, but I find that now people just come with their, their, their narrow little banal perspectives from 2021, and there's no kind of larger expanse. There's no sort of understanding of the psychology. You don't get inside the person, Yeah. you know? And um, I talk a lot in Mastery, and in, that's a quote from Nietzsche. I can't remember which one about. When you read a book, your first move should always be not, <laughs> should be to try and get inside the author, get inside the world that you're entering. And then if you find things that you don't like, then you can kind of, but you first have to enter into the spirit. And I find a lot of
0: biographers fall below that standard. And that goes to the idea of earnestness, like actually caring and being open and not being cynical and superior and... Superior, that's the right word. Um, And and you have to believe, right? So it's like, if you don't believe that an individual can make a difference, then when you write about Churchill or whomever, your frame of reference is to think about how this person wasn't special. Right. and that there isn't anything to learn from you're 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 going into it with the spirit of debunking or minimizing right and you might as well just don't do it then <laughs> like, right. you know right. why why spend five years of your life writing about someone you don't respect or that we shouldn't be because it'll sell because audiences
1: will read that. audiences love the debunking they love the cynicism it feeds what kierkegaard calls the leveling process we're going through where there shouldn't be any great men or great women that we all kind of envious and that if you debunk
0: a Lincoln who people are doing now or you debunk a, a Roosevelt who remember, wow, then I don't need to feel so inferior. I'm just as, you know, he's, he's worse right. than I am. Right, then I don't have to do anything. Yeah. So last thing, um, you mentioned Nietzsche and I thought we should always talk about these, the uh-huh. more Fati coin that we did together. Oh, yeah, together. yeah. yeah. Um, walk, walk people through... What Amor Fati means. And I thought I know we sat on this exact couch and talked about it like two years ago or more. But it strikes me that a lot of things which have required the idea of Amor Fati have transpired in the last in the, in the years since we talked about it last. You mean for me personally? Well no, I, I for uh, you well. personally, but I just mean in the world. Like it's easy world. to say like Amor Fati, love it all. And then the world grinds to a halt in a deadly pandemic right, and right, right. businesses close and society's tearing itself apart. Yeah, right. How do you think about that now? Well, it's 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 a truth. It's a principle
1: that will stand the test of time. It doesn't matter what happens in the world. It's not like the pandemic is suddenly going to, going to prove Nietzsche was wrong. The idea is things happened in the world. 98% of it's beyond our control. We're constantly dealing with pain. We're all going to die, right? Life involves obstacles, as you titled your book, et cetera. (laughs) Yeah. There's no getting around it. Right. So what is the point of kind of complaining or pushing against them? Mm -hmm. To Nietzsche, that meant you are denying life itself because life involves adversity and pain. If you embrace the pain, if you embrace the adversity, you are embracing being alive itself. Right? Sure. And so in the course of the pandemic, there are many advantages that you can uh, get from that. I mean, of course, if members of your family die, I don't mean to be- insistent. You would never have chosen it to yeah. begin with, but- Yeah. But, um, you know, and even if, people, even if friends are dying, it teaches you about the, the transience of life, the impermanence, and how you, you could be dead tomorrow. You need to think about that. You need to think of deeply about your career. Perhaps your industry that you're involved in got wiped out. You need to like reassess who you are and where you're going in life. It's a time for meditation. It's a time for reassessing your position. You know, and then um, it's not like it's. I'm trying to elevate my story, but when I had a stroke, you know, everything that was a pleasure in my life was taken away from me: swimming, hiking, biking, etc. And then I had to find, well, what's the point? This just happened. I have to accept it, right? And I have to find a way of finding something, lessons from it that are incredibly valuable. So when you have a fati, when you say everything happens for a purpose and everything contains a potential for me to turn it into some, to some incredibly valuable lesson, it means that you love life itself, that you are not a denier. And that was Nietzsche's greatest noir. His greatest pet peeve, those people who deny life, who in the guise of being all about, um, you know, virtuous, et cetera, are against, you know, are basically trying to repress the joy of being alive. And the joy of being alive involves all the pain that goes with it.
0: I was thinking about that because when I was driving and we were driving across the country, we get this terrible tire blowout in the middle of uh, Arizona in the middle of the summer to spend an hour and a half on the side of the road with two kids. Two kids. Well, that's my point. So, so an hour and a half on the side of the road. If we get the tire change. Have to drive it to a tire store. It takes two hours. Can't wait in the waiting room because of the pandemic. So we end up spending two hours waiting in a cemetery across the street <laughs> uh, in the Arizona heat. But my son said something to me um, that made me realize, in the midst of all this, he didn't understand or he didn't understand that this was not part of the trip. Like, like that this would like, that we were supposed to be driving, arrive at the place and be done. Like, because he had no expectations, he also understands he's not in control of where we're going, and what we're doing. He, I think was under the impression that we chilled for a while on the side of the road and then we went and hung out in the cemetery, right? And, and that he was able to do that because he was kind of naturally at this place of like, life just is what it is there's no way it's supposed to be. And since you don't get to have an opinion about it, you might as well have the opinion that it's great. Yeah,
1: yeah. Was this, was this um, Clark? Yeah, this was Clark.
0: Uh, Jones, at my youngest, just had even less understanding of what was happening. Yeah. And obviously there was points where they were uncomfortable or hot or whatever, but it just struck me as like, as an adult, my view was like, this is not how it's supposed to go. Right, right, so right. therefore it's bad. Right, 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 And then as I was thinking about it from his perspective, it's like, well, what if, a cemetery is really a park, right? <laughs> just outside. Yes, they're standing on top of dead bodies, but um, it's, it was also like, well, when would we do this? We would never just go sit in a park for two hours with no plans in the middle of a weekday ordinarily. And so we might as well see this as, if not good, just life. Yeah, it was part of the plan.
1: It was actually something that you planned on doing. Yes. You know, um, sometimes when I'm meditating, I'm sort of seized by this idea that the world just is as it is. Mm -hmm. It has no, doesn't have anything to do with my thoughts or my feelings, it just has this reality, right? right? That completely transcends me as an individual. So whether I'm upset or angry or whatever, it doesn't matter. It has no connection to me, right? Yeah. It just is what it is. And it's actually a really awesome feeling to sense that there's this kind of thing that transcends you completely. And it's just life going through its motions, happening every day. It's, the sun is shining and that the plants
0: out there don't know anything about Robert's problems. Right. You know, so yeah. Yeah, there's a Marcus Aurelius quote. He's quoting a lost play from Euripides, but he says, and why should you feel anger at the world as if the world would notice? Yeah, yeah. And I, it's like, yeah, why would you be upset by this and punish yourself <laughs> by not enjoying whatever it is? Isn't that a horrible thought, a lost play of Euripides? I'm so upset that we can't have these things. You know, what's, to... what struck me is that Euripides was more, this is like also, I think when you zoom way out, you get a different perspective of history. Euripides was farther away from Marcus Aurelius than we are from Shakespeare. Yeah. And so you're just like, oh man, you know? Yeah. yeah. So he could read these lost plays. He, he either had a fragment of it or he knew the play or it was performed still and it was lost. And, and Euripides wrote like 70, 80
1: plays of only which like seven or eight survive and they're all amazing or maybe more. Yeah.
0: And yeah. I mean, obviously there's lost verses of Stokes. Yeah. Do, you, do you think that um, Amor Fati, because uh, I was thinking about this definitely during the pandemic, but Amor Fati to me also feels very intertwined with the best piece of advice you gave me, which is a live time, dead time idea. Because to me, a live time, uh, Amor Fati is saying yes to life, which is actually, the, there's a new Viktor Frankl like, series, like a lost set of his lectures called, really? yeah, the, t- the title to me is amazing. It's yes to life, the subtitle is "In spite of everything." Oh, that's good. And to me, I feel like um, saying—is that his own title, or did they just put it? I on think he's. I think that course. phrase is is okay, from. Right. But the idea that um, Amor Fati is saying yes to life, or it, to me, it is choosing a lifetime. Does that sound right to you? Yeah, I mean, um, so let's take the the idea that you're in some
1: awful, awful job, which. The majority of people are in, to be honest. And I was in earlier, so I understand it very well. So if your attitude is, God damn, this job sucks. I can't wait till I get out of there. I hate these people. Why do I have to serve them? Fuck shit, fuck shit, et cetera. That is dead time. Right. Because you're not thinking. You're not interacting. You're just going through the motions. Eight hours passes and nothing has happened inside of you. You are dead. You are spiritually and morally dead inside. Right. But let's turn it around and you say, man, this job is kind of boring, but actually I'm learning a lot about myself. I'm learning, I don't want to have this job. I'm going to go to night school, I'm going to go home and I'm going to study. And actually these people I'm dealing with, if I try and actually help them or be nice to them, maybe something will come back to me or maybe I'll learn something about people's psychology. So your attitude is, I'm going to learn from this experience. Right now, everything come, turns green inside of you. It's like a plant that's living and growing and developing.
0: And so, that to me is a lifetime, and it can happen in any situation. And in meditations, and that's why we have the fire on the front. Monksrinis says that you know a fire turns everything right. into flame and brightness. To great me, it's, it's great, and I think it's also the indictment. So if you're if you're deciding to see it as that time, where you're deciding to resent it or argue about it, what you are implicitly admitting is that you don't have a very strong fire, that your fire, because you know what, like if you just have a little fire and you throw a big log on it, it puts it out, right? Or too much oxygen can put it out. But if the fire is really going, it, trans- it, it lights it right up. It, right, it, right, it's right. able to consume it. Great it. So you're essentially admitting, like, I don't have what it takes to, right. t- like, you're the one that sucks. The right. job is is what it is. Right. You're the one who's not talented enough, driven enough, open enough, whatever, to at least use it. That's not to say
1: you have to do it forever. You can't leave and change. Well, you will. But the thing is, think of it this way. When you're going through it and you're in the dead time zone, which is happens a lot, and I've known it, dealt with it personally, you actually feel pretty bad about yourself at the end. You start... Getting down on yourself and you start developing this attitude that you maybe aren't worth more, that you really can't achieve more than anything else. But if you can, if you make that transformation like the fire that you're talking about, you have a tremendous sense of pride. Sure, like I have been able, you know, all these rich, privileged people they don't understand. I actually am going through hardship, but I'm turning into something great. You feel pride, you feel a sense of that you're worth something and that translates in a year or two into actually creating and getting out of your shit job. Right. So you create in in creating this larger fire, you create an attitude that's actually gonna change your circumstances.
0: And it makes you feel much better about yourself. So why go in the opposite direction? Right. It's like life is too short to not to, to feel anything but the war party. Yeah. Because you're you're well, again if you don't have a choice so you might as well like yeah yeah it's not easy no one says it's easy
1: no but it's in, simple but not easy it's simple but in, in doing something that's hard there's an incredible value in, in taking these challenges head on sure and not you know not being a whim and not being lacking the courage to to turn it into something positive. That's right. It was awesome to see you again. Yeah yeah it was great. I have done this before.
0: Thanks so much for listening. If you could leave a review for the podcast, we'd really appreciate it. The the reviews make a difference. And of course, every nice review from a nice person helps balance out the crazy people who get triggered and angry anytime we say something they disagree with. So if you could rate this podcast and leave a review on iTunes, that would mean so much to us and it would really help the show. We appreciate it. And I'll see you next episode. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to The Daily Stoic early and ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen early and ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Do you want to hear about the $100 wedding dress that just saved Abercrombie? Or the tech acquisition that was just like Game of Thrones? Or the one financial equation that can solve climate change? Then check out our daily podcast, The Best One Yet, or as we call it, T-boy. This is Nick. This is Jack. And we pick the three most interesting business news stories every day for the perfect mix. 20 minutes each morning, you're going to feel brighter.
1: We call it pop biz, don't we, Jack?
0: Where pop culture meets business news. So whether you want to kick off a conversation with your buddies, or you're going for that promotion at work, or you just want to know the trends before your friends, feel brighter by starting your morning with us every weekday. Listen to the best one yet on the Wondery app or wherever you get your pods. You can listen to the best one yet ad free right now.
1: on Wondery Plus.
0: For more deep dive and daily business content, listen on Wondery, the destination for business podcasts. With shows like The Best One Yet, How I Built This, and many more, Wondery means business.